Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Kyle Buchanan. He has to be one of the most requested guests that we've had on this podcast. His new book, Blood, Sweat and Chrome, which recounts the making of Mad Max Fury Road has stormed up the best-selling list and is on everybody's is is on everybody's uh, bedside uh, shelf at the moment. Uh, lots of people reading it. I can see lots of people uh, commenting on it and loads of people rushing back to Mad Max to give it another watch as if we needed any excuse. But uh, we, we fueled, fueled, octane fueled by Kyle's uh, revelations and and uh, an appreciation of the making of this this incredibly difficult original artistically supreme film it it puts it in a whole new light if you enjoy the podcast please remember to uh, like share do what you can to spread the word i very much appreciate it you can follow me on twitter at dr john t d r j o n t y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation
You mean how, how, why did it take so long for them to be able to make Fury Road? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, two things. One is that Fury Road took a long time in itself for, you know, book length reasons. But then also, you know, in between the first three and Fury Road, there was a long stretch of time where Mel Gibson kind of came to Hollywood and became an incredible megastar. You know, I think people think because Fury Road or the Mad Max series sort of launched Gibson that it kind of all happened in concert with everything else we remember about him. But he didn't even start making Lethal Weapon or any of those movies really until after Thunderdome, after the third film. So he became very famous. And meanwhile, George Miller was trying, uh, you know, to give Hollywood uh, the same kind of try and meeting with decidedly more mixed results. Um, You know, he was trying to make a whole bunch of movies that, uh, were uh, difficult because of the producers, like Witches of Eastwick, or he would spend years working on a movie like Contact, the adaptation of the Carl Sagan book, and then uh, Warner Brothers would let him go and he would sue Warner Brothers. So meanwhile, while you know Mel, Mel Gibson was having this charmed Hollywood journey, George Miller was not. And so I think it took a little while for George to say, you know what? Let me return to something that I absolutely do know how to make that nobody could dispute that I know how to make, which is Mad Max. And I think, you know, especially after the uh, the financial failure of, of Babe Pig in the City, the Babe sequel, he thought, OK, this is this is the thing on my plate. Uh, Hollywood doesn't always know what to do with me, but at least there's three other Mad Max movies that prove that, you know, uh, to some degree, I know what I'm doing there. Uh, and then it just took, you know, uh, for reasons that we could spend hours on, a million more years for them to actually get to make Fury Road after coming up with the idea for it. What was your connection with the Mad Max series? When when did you start sort of, when did you first see them? The very first one that I saw was Thunderdome because it had kids in it. That simple. Uh, I think that's <laughs> why my family thought I could watch that one. Uh, I believe my uncle Tim showed it to me. And uh, then over the years saw uh, Road Warrior and the first Mad Max. And, you know, because of that, and also because of George Miller's other films, I was anticipating Fury Road, but I had heard a lot of, you know, bad buzz. The rumor mill was working overtime about what a, you know, difficult shoot it was and Tom and Charlize not liking each other and, you know, the studio having no confidence in it. But as soon as I started to see first footage from it, I was blown away. Uh, I really was like, you know, the Comic-Con presentation and the first trailer. It's incredible. It's, it's, it just doesn't look like anything else. It, it doesn't even look completely like the first few Mad Max movies. It was its own imaginative beast. And you hope that the movie is going to live up to those initial images. And when I first saw Fury Road at a press screening uh, a few weeks before it came out, I just was, yeah, completely gobsmacked, awestruck, thought it was incredible. My jaw was, you know, hanging open. And and from that point on, I, I was really, really obsessed with the movie. I, I remember watching the trailer. I was uh, on a break for, for, I was teaching at university and I was on a break and I, I watched the, the trailer on my computer. And I just said to the students, oh, my God, you've got to watch this. And I put it up on the <laughs> yeah. screen and we all watched it together. And it, there was a set and I'd been in a similar situation where I hadn't heard any buzz, 
But I was kind of like, oh, another remake, another sort of sequel from a franchise. And then I, after the trailer, I was excited. And then I saw it at Cannes. I saw it in the morning press screening in Cannes. And I, it's one of my highlights of Cannes. Of, uh, not, not, not of that particular Cannes. I mean, of my entire time going to Cannes. For sure. I wish that they had had it compete in the official selection. I, I don't know that George, you know, pushes for that. Uh, his next movie is, is also going to play Cannes out of competition. But... I mean, I really do think that that would have rated very highly and perhaps won an award or two had it been in the um, official competition. It, yeah, it's it's just that good. It is it is uh, an incredible book and uh, an incredible movie. And I say this as the guy who's written the book on it, but I can still put it on and get totally absorbed in it uh, as though, you know, I were watching it for the first time. I think the thing with your book is that it's it's giving people an excuse as if they needed one to just go back and watch the film, sure, which is exactly. exactly what I've done. I bet that I bet that is the most um, immediate reaction. Yeah, and you know, I'm always heartened when the people who feel that are film programmers who can put the film on in their theater, as has been done with uh, some of the Q and A's that I have been doing. You know, I went to the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn and they played the film and then I, I did a Q&A after. And I felt like maybe actually this was what I was conspiring to all along, which is just more chances to see it on the big screen because it really does, you know, use every inch of it. How did you get into writing the book and, and why did you choose the sort of oral history as an approach? Uh, a couple of reasons. The, the book initially grew out of a, an oral history that I had done for the times. And that kind of was a matter of expedience, which was, you know, in spring 2020, the movie release calendar fell apart because of the pandemic. Uh, no new movies were really coming out. Uh, nobody knew what to do. And I, my job was still to cover new movies. So I was looking for other things that I could write about. And I knew it was about to be the fifth anniversary of Fury Road. And, um, you know, I had heard a lot of stories about the making of that movie in the years since it had come out, uh, not all of which were confirmed at the time. Sometimes you could sense that people were talking around them, but I thought that maybe with five years distance, um, that people would be more willing to speak freely. Um, so at that point I got about 22, 23 uh, key participants, most of the cast and George and some department heads and did a little oral history for the Times, which was about 4,500 words, I think. Um, you know, a lot, uh, a whole big chunk of space for a New York Times article, but still just scratching the surface. Uh, and I knew from having spoken to all these people that there were so many stories, you know, even things that they had told me then, and there just wasn't space to go into them. So, you know, fortunately, uh, other people agreed. People encouraged me to write this book. I, I got my agent, Rick Richter. Uh, we had a, you know, a nice little uh, publishing bidding war for it. And HarperCollins bid on it. And then I set off and interviewed like 110 more people, um, you know, over the next four months, which is wild thinking back on it you know, uh, while also working a very time-consuming day job at the New York Times where it was award season and I was doing, you know, a million interviews for that too. 
So, but that was the pre-vax part of the pandemic where, you know, our lives were much more circumscribed and I mm. tilted the work-life balance dial much more towards work. <laughs> <laughs> no, no sourdough bread baking for you. No, no, my, my, uh, <laughs> my, my sourdough bread was the book for sure. <laughs> I, the book, I mean, the, the oral history as well feels like such an exciting way because for me, the most uh, successful oral history book is um, Wise Guys by Nicholas uh, Pileggi. And yeah. It, and, and your book had a kind of wise guy's feel to it, you know? Oh, I'm happy to hear that. I appreciate that. That same sort of speed and that same sort of, and people not necessarily agreeing with each other and arguing sort of between the lines. Well, you know, that is one of the virtues of the oral history format is that, you know, truth is a relative thing. And I think when you speak to a whole lot of people, you can sort of, you know, attempt to locate the truth in the middle based on what people are telling you. But also a, a key part of why I wanted it to be an oral history is because if you're describing what goes into making a movie, I know it's very tempting to just totally subscribe to the auteur theory and be like, well, George Miller just did it all. But even he would say that's not true. And when you look at the incredible amount of names in that closing credits scroll, all of whom have incredible stories about the making of this movie, you know, I wanted to give them their due. I also wanted to describe what it is like to be on a movie set where sure, you know, Tom Hardy and Charlize are the, you know, two first to build people on the call sheet, but they're wildly outnumbered by the amount of crew members around whose experiences of what's going on are every bit as valid and every bit as interesting. So I really felt like, you know, if it were written through a book, inevitably, you would get the most quotes from the famous people and everybody else would essentially be paraphrased. Whereas with an oral history, you get those quotes from everybody who worked on the production and they're all rubbing shoulders with each other. Yeah, it sort of becomes more democratic, sort of evens out a little bit more. It just gives you, I think, a more accurate presentation of what a Hollywood production is like. There's so many people, so many people who work on it. And yet at the same time, this is kind of like, I mean, it is a major Hollywood production, but they're, they're out in the desert. They're, they're, they're doing a lot of their prep in Australia and, and people from Warner Brothers are, are, are sort of thousands of miles away. Uh, yeah, although uh, Warner Brothers would send a lot of people to set just to check up and see what was going on. Um, yeah, I mean, that's unconventional, too. Most movies these days are shot, you know, in studio sound stages. In fact, you know, if, if, if you were getting Fury Road off the ground now, I'm sure that um, the argument would be made that you would want to shoot it, um, you know, with gigantic LCD uh, soundstage sets projecting the desert, you know, as is done on things like uh, The Mandalorian. Um, and that just, you know, there just was an emphasis from George Miller and his department heads on trying to do almost everything for real, not just actually shooting in a desert, not just actually having the, uh, the vehicles drive in almost every scene instead of, you know, faking it, not just, um, having that guitar actually shoot flames instead of, uh, you know, using CGI to make it happen. But like, 
living it, living the experience, living the world, you know, the war boys lived their characters. Everybody else, uh, there were workshops, uh, dramaturges brought in, all sorts of things were done to make this experience feel personal and real for the people involved. That was not always easy because, you know, watch the movie. The Wasteland is not an easy place. The characters are not going through easy things. So to live that for a really long period of time was arduous, exhausting, frustrating, sometimes depending on who you spoke to. But it gives the whole movie, this fantasy movie, an incredible reality that uh, that makes it feel more visceral. One of the unconventional things that, that George does, and I really wanted to ask you this because I, I couldn't quite understand it, was he's shooting the whole film like in chronological order <laughs> and he's shooting shooting it in these little bits, you know. He's not he's not sort of letting the scene play out. He's just no, I just need this shot, and I just need this shot. And I, what was the reasoning behind that? What was the? I understand the chronological order, but but just that idea of not, I just need that one shot here or this angle there. Well, so unlike almost any other movie, uh, Fury Road was written in storyboards. That was the script. Storyboards, mm. thousands of them. If you wanted to read Fury Road, you would fly to Sydney to George Miller's conference room at his production company, and he would take you through the storyboard room from left to right, like a you know conductor describing the movie to you as you watched it uh, via these storyboards. And because it took so long to realize, because he started storyboarding this, you know, uh, just before the turn of the century, and then. You know, the movie came out in 2015 after countless holdups, delays, production shutdowns, etc. So this had been playing on a loop in his head for ages. You know, that's part of why he had the confidence to keep going despite these crazy active God setbacks. It's because he saw the movie. It was in his head and it was a masterpiece. And um, once he got on set, he knew exactly what he would need and what he wouldn't need. And so unlike, you know, again, unlike most productions where, you know, you'll shoot the same scene, you'll let it play out in full and you'll just shoot it uh, from different angles at, you know, different close up levels. George knew, OK, I'm only going to need a shot of Max as this is happening and he turns his head and I'm only going to need a shot of Furiosa putting her hand on the steering wheel and looking to her left. You know, things that were so incredibly specific um, that were difficult for the actors to connect to because it felt so disconnected from a scene or a character. Um, so it was really tricky, you know. Uh, in some ways, shooting a sequence would be a good thing for these actors because you are on the journey with your character. You know, it's chronological, it's easier to map. But that specific sort of micro shot way of shooting. And, you know, these shots in Fury Road, some of them are so brief, um, was not an easy thing for uh, the actors to wrap their heads around. And obviously, you know, to make things, to make things worse, you have that onset tension between Hardy, Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron. I was kind of willing the, I was reading the book and I was willing them to sort of kiss and make up at the end. But they, they kind of do, but kind of don't. Well... <laughs> you know, that is, that's uh, totally up to them. I mean, I think that because we love the movie, you know, 
you want everyone to come out of it smelling like a rose maybe, but it's a big Hollywood production with big Hollywood egos and stars. Um, these things aren't simple. And uh, that was another, you know, important thing to me with this book is that without feeling exploitative, I wanted to tell the full story. And, you know, it's it wasn't news per se that the two of them didn't like each other, but I wanted to try to be able to go into that with a depth that we hadn't seen before and an honesty and a candor from both of them and from, you know, the other people who worked on that set. And, you know, I think Charlize in particular is very, um, you know, clear headed and willing to explore absolutely every angle, even is generous enough to say, did I have culpability in this? How thing, how could things have changed if I had uh, been different or known or, or had less anxieties? Um, but you know, it's not easy. It's not easy working with really big actors. Um, uh, Tom Hardy will not show up on time and you have to account for that. Sometimes he'll show up in the second half of the day. That's part of why the movie went over. You know, I really like him in that movie, but I didn't have to work with him. So it's a hard thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he is, he is good. Uh, he is great. As an actor, generally, I'm a, a huge fan, but but boy, you know, I could definitely do without that tardiness. Well, yes, and so could everyone on set. You know, it's interesting right now that Johnny Depp Amber Heard uh, trial is is underway, and I, I'm not waiting into uh, that. Uh, only to say that there has been a lot of talk about uh, Depp and how late he would come to set on the Pirates movies. And, you know, this is something that happens a lot with A-list actors is a lot of them sort of feel like, you know, the movie revolves around them, which it does to some degree, and it will start when they want it to start. So will the day, you know, and Tom had been cast when he was not an A-list actor, but when production was delayed yet again, he became that in the interim, you know, Inception came out, he filmed The Dark Knight Rises, like his star was hugely on the rise. So when he got back, when, when Fury Road finally did get off the ground, he had, you know, sort of A-list bona fides and I think felt permission to flex those muscles. I, yeah, I, I don't, it's difficult getting into the sort of psychology of that, but I would just find that so exhausting. Just, 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 just do the right thing. <laughs> just, I don't know, but that's that's probably why I'm not an A-list star. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, maybe that or other reasons, right? I mean, no, to, to no, be... I think it's just that. I, think <laughs> I, I am mortified when I arrive even two minutes late to something. So, <laughs> but you yeah, know, so was... is Charlize. Charlize is incredibly punctual. That's part of the reason that these two just did not get along. You know, they had one of their biggest fights was a disagreement about how late he would come to set, and she was there early and sat in that war rig to prove that point. You know, she was not going to leave until he got there. I, I mean, when you think about that, when you think about that particular scene, which is brilliant, it's kind of like brilliant. If, if there was a movie of the movie, that would be the, the big scene, I think. But you've got George Miller, who himself is in his 70s, or, or he, he, he has his 70th birthday on set, doesn't I, I think, if, that's, if I remember rightly. Yeah, George, George was... Uh... Uh, hovering around 70, as was uh, John Seal, the, the director of photography. Um, and, and it's so physically arduous, this, this, the thing they're doing. 
yes, it was. And it definitely took a toll, uh, you know, on George physically by the end. And he had heart stents just before the production started. Um, you know, it's incredible what he pulled off. I, I spoke to a lot of uh, younger filmmakers who, you know, considered themselves schooled. You know, it's an interesting thing because some people were like, it really brims with this youthful energy, which, you know, I think that's in the eye of the beholder. What I'm really struck by, especially after having written the book, is that I really don't think that younger people could have made this movie because George and John Seal and Guy Norris, who's the stunt coordinator and second unit director, simply are old enough to have come of age at a time when you could do all these things for real. I mean, they made the first Mad Max movie George did, um, you know, with like virtually no permits, they would just guerrilla filmmake and go and crash things for real and not know what the consequences of any of this was. The Road Warrior, you know, there's a famous stunt gone wrong in that where a stuntman almost dies and they include it in the film. And that stuntman happens to be a young Guy Norris who, you know, organized uh, all the stunts for Fury Road. So they know exactly what they can do and can't. They know what they can get away with shooting it for real and what they can't. And I just think that those are disciplines and and, uh, bases of knowledge that directors simply will not have. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Going forward, because you know, they're not brought up the same way as, as Miller and his compatriots. The people who are making large-scale action movies these days are, you know, by and large, like Sundance filmmakers who are hired and jump up, you know, to a staggering budget level based on very little and, and have not had that expertise before jumping to that budget level and are not necessarily even controlling their own action. You know, they, they hop onto, let's say, superhero productions that are where the action is handled by the second unit director. And a lot of the, you know, action sequences are pre already. So you're just there to corral the actors and that's about it. There's, there's rarely uh, someone who could even come up through the system in the way that George and his compatriots did who have the knowledge of what you can get away with. So to me, I felt like their age was, was an asset. I, well, also obviously making it a more physically grueling experience, but it just wouldn't be that movie if you didn't have men uh, who were, you know, uh, around their seventies or, or entering it 
who had that base of knowledge. Yeah, I, I always always love the idea as well that Mad Max, the original one, um, uh, earned more than Star Wars in in Australia, and it was this tiny, you know, micro budget film. Yeah, and you know, to go back and look at that and and know what they went through to get that made is pretty crazy too. Um, the crew nearly staged a coup uh, because they didn't believe that George had the stuff to get this movie over the line. You know, he had started as a doctor. So I think people were skeptical of like, okay, this is a moonlighting filmmaker. Do we really take him seriously? He also has this very mild manner where, you know, he's not a fire-breathing Michael Bay type. And I think not everyone knew, you know, or had the full faith and confidence in him to be able to make this. And unfortunately, that is something that, that Miller has had to contend with most of his filmmaking career where he, uh, you know, will sign on to something and, and almost immediately there's some sort of faction of the production that just doesn't believe in his ability to get it done. I'm hoping that with Furiosa, this, this, Furi- this prequel that he's making right now, um, that he will have more wind at his back because, you know, Fury Road is such a... Um, incredible proof of concept that he knows what he's doing still especially in this world but you just never know he is a a very unique figure um you know uh, i heard that charlie's one of the favorite things that uh, that she liked about the book is just trying to get to know the enigma that is george a little bit better because he is still to a lot of people who know him all something of an enigma yeah, it is a crazy. There are these directors who, you know, Terence Malick is another one who has have this sort of aura about them, and they don't seem to slot into that, you know, um, job per right, you know, riding crop, shouting at people, bullying people, sort of personality that you usually associate with director for better or worse. Yeah, uh, there's a whole lot of ways to skin a cat, right? And this mm. is a really unique situation. You know, I think when I spoke to George about the Tom and Charlize of it all, he does have some regrets about that uh, and about how he handled it or, you know, stayed hands off. But his biggest priority and responsibility was making sure that everyone was safe doing the action scenes. You know, having been through that experience on Road Warrior where that stunt went wrong, and knowing how large scale, how many stunts there would be, how wild they were, you know, I think that was the scariest thing for him. And that's what that that's what got the lion's share of his attention. Uh, but it's also worth noting that, like, for as mild as George seems to be, he has this spine of steel. And, mm. you know, you can try to pull a movie away from George Miller, but good luck to you. <laughs> he's not he's not going to part with it. And. You know, uh, he is going to do what he wants. He's protected by, you know, a producer, Doug Mitchell, who aids him with everything that he wants and needs. And you're just going to have to go down George's path. The idea that you're going to arrest him from that path, not going to happen. Yeah, and I mean, you see that in the day-to-day making of the film where, you know, I think one of the people that you interview says on, on other films, you know, if it's easier we'll do it that way you know becomes uh you know a solution but with george miller it's like nope it doesn't matter how hard it is that's the way i want it you know 
and he's surrounded by people again who just know how to make those things happen you know mm. no and, and if, if they don't they have a blast of a time researching it like the pole cats you know the the um the adversaries who are on poles in the third act chase of the movie that's not something anybody knew how to do when they came up with the idea for it so you know they called in Cirque du Soleil people they built these they experimented with them they had the luxury of doing all that until they could make it work um and again that's just something where uh, at some point you know if you were some fledgling filmmaker hired out of a film festival and this was your second movie and you had this idea people would just be like we'll see Gia yeah we can make that work in CG would you have like the the ability to sort of marshal your resources and say no we're gonna work on this for months until we can figure out how to do it for real you know who can do that not many people can and george is one of a, a vanishing breed I'm, yeah absolutely I, it reminds me as well when you say that the the shot in the movie in in, in the road warrior of the the stuntman being injured is um it reminds me of Buster Keaton sort of, you know, jumping off a building and missing. And that's the shot that he puts in the, in the film. He, he uses it, you know. I think there's, there's the spirit of Buster Keaton is evident throughout this uh, movie. You know, George is a big believer in like uh, the power of silent films as also as a guide, as an editor, Um, you know, he edits with his wife, Margaret Sixel and an incredible editing team, but the way uh, shots uh, inform one another in sequence, you know, in a silent film, you see that all over Fury Road. And as far as incredible as the sound is, the sound design, you know, justifiably Oscar winning, the score by Tom Holgenborg, absolutely incredible. You can watch it silently and still glean everything. I've watched people watch it, you know, over their shoulders on an airplane, uh, not hearing it, but seeing it. And, you know, it, it utterly stands up. And of course, it's the same story as the general. I mean, the story structure is, you know, a chase in one direction and then turning around and chasing back in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, and then such a deceptively simple logline, especially when you put it that way. But there is so much going on under the hood, you know, and that is part of the... Uh, part of the upside of this movie having taken you know 15 years to essentially get made uh is that they were able to continue thinking about this and also had the desire to continue thinking deeply about absolutely every single thing in the movie and you know imbue it with a lot of symbolic resonance and have these really potent themes uh under the surface like female empowerment and resource holding by the rich and you know environmental collapse so we, you know, when people say this is like Mad Max or this is like Fury Road, it's not just, it, it's talking about all sorts of things these days. I mean, I can't tell you since the pandemic began how often I've seen it, that movie used as a reference and it's used as a reference for a million different things, not even just the things you'd expect. Absolutely. I mean, you make the, the point about the legacy of uh, Mad Max Fury Road as well and how, how, how impactful it's been. Oh, horrible words, sorry. What, what a great impact it's had uh, on the culture as compared to, say, to a lesser extent, something like Avatar, which is financially successful. You know, nobody's really talking about it in the same way. Well, you know, I think Fury Road is an incredibly 
influential movie in some ways and then uh, a dead end in others. Um, incredibly influential in that it, be, it became so quickly like a, a crucial permanent part of the pop cultural canon. It is the high watermark for modern action filmmaking. There's no question. But when we talk about influence, we talk about copycats, right? We talk about people mm-hmm. who are like, I want to make my own Fury Road, which the uh, you know first three Mad Max movies all did spawn. Uh, it spawned a very recognizable post-apocalyptic aesthetic for one thing um, that you've seen you know in, in countless movies since when you see post-apocalyptic uh, or dystopian sci-fi and, and, and action films, they're almost always drawing from either Mad Max or Blade Runner. But when we talk about Fury Road's influence, uh, you know, without those copycats or even a means to get those copycats out there, sometimes I wonder how influential it's really allowed <coughs> to be because there simply isn't a system now where people can make action movies that follow in its footsteps. You know, the biggest scale action movies are all executive driven interlocking franchise universes. And within those, there are house styles, there are, um, you know, executives and producers who are at every turn trying to smooth the movie out, which Fury Road also had and simply did not capitulate to. So, when are we going to get anything that even approaches half of the wildness, daring, know-how, uh, visceral filmmaking quality of Fury Road? We haven't gotten anything since. And I really do think the only thing that we'll ever get maybe that really feels like half a patch on it is Miller's own Furiosa. Mm. And, and has he begun that then? Has he begun filming on that? Uh, it has been delayed several times because it is a big George Miller production and these things come with the territory, but it is supposed to start uh, uh, fully shooting. It, it's, you know, full shoot this year. It's all cast up. They have made the vehicles. They are ready. I, I, I'm really excited for it because I do think that despite what you said about the post-apocalyptic universe, which absolutely I agree with, but each Mad Max film is really a different sort of genre as well. You know, the first one is a real revenge sort of Dirty Harry style film, quite gritty. Second one is real, is a proper The Chase movie. And then Thunderdome is more science fiction fantasy and, you know. So so each one feels feels like it's telling a very different story. Yeah, I mean, sometimes even literally, uh, you know, I spoke to a lot of fans who felt that, you know, the fact that this movie doesn't star uh, Mel Gibson can also sort of be hand-waved away because several of the movies sort of imply that they're being recapitulated, that they're, they're a legend that's been told, that's been passed down, and you're seeing the legend. Uh, so I think that gives you a lot of room to go with. And it'll actually be pretty interesting with Furiosa because you will see a lot of the characters from Fury Road you will see war rigs, uh, you'll see settings. Um, but from everything that I've been told from the people who are working on it, it is a movie with a different feel. You know, there are long dialogue scenes in Furiosa that include Furiosa. Fury Road does not have those. Um, 
it is just a different kind of story that is told in that world. And I'm, I'm super uh, curious to see how they bring it off. Are you going to go on set and be like the, uh, the, the <laughs> I doubt it. The Boswell, <laughs> the Boswell to Miller's Johnson. Um, you know, I would love to be on that set. Although, um, yeah, I mean, listen, I, uh, I've heard from many people involved in the movie who uh, really appreciate the book. And George was really terrific while I was writing it, sort of authorizing people to speak to me. You know, the, I, I talked to a lot of people who have never even acknowledged that they worked on this film. You know, people mm -hmm. like Kelly Marcel, who is... Uh, a writer who worked with Tom Hardy, who spent months uh, being there in production and is not credited. I don't think anybody even knew that she had done this. Um, and they, a lot of people would seek George's permission before they spoke to me and he was kind enough to always provide it. That said, I don't know that he loved the idea that this book was being written. You know, he is somebody who has overseen every aspect of the Mad Max universe and has a level of control that comes with that. And so to know that somebody else is working on kind of a definitive document about Mad Max and you're just a participant along for the ride, you know, I think, uh, I think near the end of the process, he had a little bit of concern about it. Um, you know, again, he was still generous enough to sit for a final interview with me, but I could, I could t t detect when we first started speaking in that last conversation that he was a little bit like, so, you know, you've dug up a lot of these people that we've never talked about. Uh, you may have heard some stories that, uh, you know, weren't out there or hadn't been said in that much depth and it's not all going to be wine and roses. So, you know, I, I, I understand that skepticism. You never know someone's agenda. I had no agenda other than, you know, being totally truthful and just telling the story of what it was like. But, you know, other people might have leaned more into the scandal or uh, what have you of it. And how does he know what it's going to be? He, you know, he's been interviewed by me before, but you never know. You never know how something's going to turn out. Yeah, the angle. Which is all to angle. say that uh, I would be surprised if you were like, yeah, come on over. <laughs> Watch everything. Uh, write down all the things that maybe don't go as well. I, I, I don't think he welcomes that. I think he would like to be the top dog on a set and not have to worry about that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, he listens to this podcast, so I'm sure. I mean, we'll, we'll at least put the idea out there for him. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, listen, I know, Kyle, that you've got to run because uh, you've got a work commitment, but I want to ask you as a final question, the, um, uh, we, we ask for recommended books uh, on this podcast, so, the, so the, uh, uh, specifically film books. Um, is, there, is there a film book? It doesn't have to be like your favourite or the best, no pressure, but just something that you'd recommend for, for our listeners to sort of uh grab onto something maybe that's influenced your your own career yes very much so actually i have three that come to mind uh if you don't mind uh no not at all the more the that were influential in just even me pointing me on the path to write this book uh two that i had read when i was much younger which were monster by john gregory dunn uh sort of written with his wife joan didion about 
chronicling the tortured development of what was supposed to be a hard hitting drama about, you know, uh, a newswoman and her struggles with uh, alcohol and drug dependency. And then over, you know, years of studio notes became the frothy motion picture up close and personal with Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert Redford. And his account of how that movie transformed is very funny, very uh, scathing and very interesting. Um, And also Julie Solomon wrote a great book about the making of the bonfire of the vanities, a very cursed production, uh, which is called the devil's candy. Those were two pretty influential books for me uh, just in educating me how Hollywood worked, how movies were made uh, well before I, you know, even became a journalist. Um, and they were at the forefront of my mind when I was writing this, but I, I, I definitely thought to myself, you know, those are two definitive books on, on movie making, but the movies did not turn out to be that great. And it is a sort of cautionary tale because of that. And I wanted to write a book where the making of it was every bit as uh, complicated, but the movie turned out to be a masterpiece. Um, And I think a recent book um, that is also an oral history that does that really well and where the movie is a great result, but it's also the book is written so well is uh, All Right, All Right, All Right. It's an oral history of Dazed and Confused by Melissa Mares. It's really good, not just because it does all the things that you're expecting it to, which is she talks to everyone, every single person. Um, And they all have great stories about the making of the film, but because as it goes on and the book stretches far beyond the making of the film, the release of the film, and then starts to track, you know, the actors as they get out in the real world. And some of them obviously become some big successes and some don't you know some go into working for apple care or, or what have you and they look back on this time of their lives you know the like people like ben affleck were like that was the most pure filmmaking experience of my career and, and so are some of the others and you realize that what you have sort of been reading in stealth is a movie about or is a book about high school in the same way that the movie is about high school that people look back on this romanticized part of their lives before their real lives had to start or were forced to start, or maybe didn't turn out exactly the way they wanted. And so there is this sort of like real poignant undertow of nostalgia and memory and lives that didn't look like people thought they would. And it just makes the movie feel more resonant. And she tells the story so well, I was really knocked out by that book. Oh, I'll have to put I'll have to put those on on the list. Um, Please do and Sal- talk to Melissa. She's great. Yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, this is how this podcast works. People recommend something, then then I end up doing a podcast episode. Julie Salomon did a did a an interview with me. Um, did an episode uh, back in December, I think. So uh, yeah, that's another Devil's Candy is a, such a good book. Yes, and she recently turned it into a podcast. So. Yeah, I think that's why she agreed to do the podcast right. with me because she was in, she was in practice. <laughs> she was very good. Well, listen, listen, Kyle. Thank you so much for um, for agreeing to talk to me. It's it's you, congratulations on the book. I mean, the book manages to be. Uh, I'm not going to say as exciting as the movie because that 
obviously would be bullshit, but it manages to, <laughs> to, to keep up, you know, you're, you're, you're running after the movie. The movie is the war rig and you're nuts sort of trotting along at the, trying to get, get, get onto it. Well, you know, it's, it's a blessing to me, even if it was uh, arduous for them, uh, that the experience of making the movie reflects the themes and the momentum of the movie in a lot of ways. And so I wanted the book to feel that way too. And, I, and I'm very heartened when people say that it has that kind of momentum and, and, you know, reads like a freight train. That's exciting to me. You know, when you write about an action movie, you want to feel like the rhythms of that action movie do exist in the book. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. So, I mean, you know, well done. I, and I know that loads of people have been uh, on my Twitter feed saying, you've got to do an episode, you've got to do an episode, you've got to get Kyle. I appreciate it. So that was my conversation with Kyle. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a little bit, uh, we had to cut it a little bit short because Kyle had to go off and do New York Times stuff. The the very, the, the nerve of the man. But in a sense, it sort of fits with what we were talking about in terms of Mad Max, which is this such a tight, fast, furious, uh, much better than the Fast and Furious films, it has to be said adventure that that our conversation was similarly muscle-bound sweaty and without an inch of fat so i hope you enjoyed it we should have what we should have done is in the middle of the podcast we should have uh turned around and gone back the way we came uh, uh, defeating everybody in our paths all that remains is to thank elliot atkins for the music ali howard for the art and thank you listener uh, and i'll see you or i'll talk to you next week Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.